The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The U.S. Federal Reserve has again raised its key interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point to 3.75%. It's the latest in a stream of aggressive rates hikes aimed at bringing inflation under control. U.S. prices are rising at a rate not seen since the 1980s. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says even more rate hikes are likely, and that will take its toll on economic growth. It is very premature to be thinking about pausing. We have a ways to go. Our policy, we need ongoing rate hikes to get to that level of sufficiently restrictive. And we, we don't, of course, we don't really know exactly where that is. Former President Trump is hinting at another run for office in 2024. Mr. Trump made his strongest remarks about throwing his hat back in the ring during a campaign rally in Iowa on Thursday. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again. Maybe some good news for folks in Shanghai, Beijing, and thousands of other cities and towns across China. And that is the potential end, finally, of China's painful zero COVID policy. Well, officially, of course, zero COVID is the policy here, but there was a bit of a shift in the public messaging, which could potentially lay the groundwork for an exit to zero COVID. As interest rates have risen dramatically to combat the worst inflation we've seen in 40 years, so has the government's cost to service the exploding debt. The longer rates stay relatively high, the worse this could get. According to Treasury data, net interest payments for 2022 will total $471 billion. For perspective, at this current level, the amount spent on debt service is similar to the amount spent each year on national defense. As we move forward, the government may be forced to make tough choices regarding where money is spent and how revenue is raised to combat what's potentially a major issue. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, stocks finished out the week on a positive note on Friday as the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7%. But it was another negative week of losses for investors as the Fed dispelled any hopes of a pivot away from its tightening policies. Fed Chairman Powell warning markets the terminal Fed funds rate was heading higher than what was expected in September as it continues to fight inflationary headwinds. Everything from expansionary physical policy, tightening and rising energy supplies to continuous supply chain problems. Commodity prices took flight on Friday after news was announced that China may be lifting its strict COVID policies. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, Tom McCullen joins me at the top of the hour. Tom sees a rally in stocks with the beginning of the third year of a presidential election cycle, with the caveat of a hawkish Fed. Tom sees energy and commodity prices rising higher. Tom will be followed by Selma Hepp from CoreLogic. She joins me to discuss the real estate market, which has been hit hard by a rise in mortgage rates to the highest levels that we have seen in over two decades, as mortgage rates approach close to 8%, one of the first casualties of the Fed's rate tightening. Finally, Chris Sheridan and I will talk about the perfect storm energy, inflation, war, and debt. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? 
First, let me apologize. I've had a cold all week, but with that said, let's get started here. It was a bumpy ride this week for stocks, bonds, and commodities. To backtrack a little, stocks were set for a rally since the market conditions were oversold and sentiment was bearish a couple of weeks ago. Then a catalyst hit from an article from the Wall Street Journal by Nick Tameros that the Fed is considering slowing its rate of interest rate hikes after raising 75 basis points at the November meeting. Fast forward to this week and another Nick Tameros article, which shook things up over the weekend that the Fed's terminal rate ultimately would be higher than the market expects and that it would stay there for longer due to excess savings and strong consumer market. Bond yields had been falling all last week, but then began to fall again this week because of his article and as a result of the Fed confirming Nick's comments. Stocks rallied at the beginning of the Fed's announcement Wednesday, which was largely telegraphed with a 75 basis point hike to a target range of three and three quarters to 4%, with new language from the Fed that stated, will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation and economic and financial developments. It was thought that this was the language that investors had hoped could lead the way to reducing the rate of future increases to 50 basis points instead of 75. However, Jay's comments during the press conference confirmed the recent article from Nick that the terminal rate is higher than investors expect and will likely stay there longer, stating, We still have some ways to go, and incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. He did state that there will be a time to reduce the pace of increases, and it could come as early as the next meeting, but he left the timing open-ended. He finally stated that policy needs to be more restrictive and that narrows the path to a soft landing. Unfortunately for these hopes, the Fed has raised rates aggressively. The economy has seen virtually no growth and inflation is still high. We see the chance of a soft landing as slim to none and are investing accordingly in our client accounts with an active defensive tilt since February. Post the Fed meeting, the two-year Treasury yield climbed to 4.62% and settled this week post the strong jobs report Friday at 4.67% and the 10-year settled at 4.16%. On the opposite side of the Atlantic, President Lagarde of the ECB, the European Central Bank, said that recession risk at the Eurozone level has increased and that inflation is too high. The Bank of England raised its policy rate 75 basis points to its policy rate of 3%. Besides the Fed, another strong catalyst this week was differing information we received regarding China's intention to ease COVID restrictions. Starting on Monday, Reuters talked about the suspension of operations at Shanghai Disneyland that restrictions could affect iPhone productions at the Foxconn manufacturing facility as well. There was an unverified post on Twitter Monday Monday night by Shanghai macro strategist with four paragraphs detailing a China reopening plan causing Chinese and commodity stocks to rally for two days straight. The social media post was credited for causing a $450 billion rally in stocks, according to Bloomberg. Midweek, health authorities in China shot down the social media speculation that it would shift its policies. 
only to see from Bloomberg <laughs> and Reuters that China is in fact preparing a plan to ease COVID restrictions mainly regarding travel and airlines. But that seemed to help stocks with China exposure rally hard on Friday, like JD.com up 9.7%, Alibaba up 7%, Starbucks up 85 and Nike up 6 Gold finished the week up 1.9%, silver up 8.5%, copper up 7.5%, and oil up 5.36% as a result of those hopes on China easing restrictions. Looking at economic data, the ISM Manufacturing Index continued its descent, falling to 50.2 from 50.9 last month. The ISM Services Index ticked down to a new year-to-date low of 54.4 from 56.7 in October. In the employment data, job openings increased according to the JOLT survey to 10.7 million in September from 10.2 million, and non-farm payroll Friday rose higher than expected to 261,000 in October, while the unemployment rate rose to 3.7 in a mixed message for investors. It was another big week in earnings with over a third of the S&P 500 companies reporting. In aggregate, Fact said is reporting that 70% of companies are beating estimates and earnings are only coming in at 1.9% above estimates, both of which are well below their 5- and 10-year averages. Positive earnings for energy and healthcare are largely offsetting negative earnings by financials, communication services, and consumer discretionary sectors. Companies are doing quite well on revenues, which aren't inflation-adjusted, so the focus should mainly be on earnings and profitability, which aren't looking good. With the resulting rise in rates and yields this week and mixed earnings message, mega cap stocks took a hit, with the Vanguard mega cap growth ETF down 6.8% on the week. That will pretty much wrap up the week in finance. Up next, our guest technician, Tom McClellan. The Fed has gone from the easiest monetary policy they've ever conducted to sort of shock therapy, where the Fed is just taking rates from zero to north of four in nine months without really taking any step back and, and, and seeing the lay of the land. Now, of course, I do think that they're going to, and I say of course, but it's of course in my mind, I do think that after that December hike, they're going to then finally take that step back. But that's after you know the shock therapy is, is, is well within and working through the system. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, Go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today. At 888-486-3939, let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, stocks are up on this Friday. A nice way to finish the week. Will this rally continue into the end of the year? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Tom McClellan. Tom, take it from the top. Uh, we've had a bit of a rally here. 
does this get extended? Is this the Santa Claus rally everybody's been waiting for, or could we have some trouble ahead? Well, I want to speak real precisely about a term you used. The Santa Claus rally refers to the last five days of the trading year and the first two days of the new trading year. So we're not even close to that period yet. And so that's a very precise industry term that I don't want to get anybody mistaken in terms of what they think the meaning is. Uh, if you follow the presidential cycle, as, as I do, and seasonality, we should be in an upturn now. Those have turned upward in, as of October, and we are in the seasonally strong period of the year. But the market has some headwinds against it that may overwhelm and, and overcome those seasonal forces of strength. And the biggest of those is the Fed. Yeah, because, I mean, we sort of had this turbulence on Wednesday because they had that one sentence in their statement that said, maybe we, you know, we might want to sit and look and see what some of the lag effects are. And the market picked up on that. But then in the press conference, he said, you know what? The terminal rate is going much higher than we originally thought in September. And the market did not like that. Well, it was Chairman Powell's uh, assertion during the press conference that they're not even close to thinking about tapering as a lot of people on Wall Street had thought they would be. And that kind of dashed everybody's hopes. But even more important than what the Fed does with interest rates is what it's doing with its its holdings of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. We are in full-blown quantitative tightening mode. This is the third time in history that the Fed has ever done this. The first was in 2008, when they started selling off their holdings in the middle of a financial crisis, thinking that would help somehow, and it and it didn't help the stock market at all. The second time they did it was in 2018 and 19, and uh, in the middle of a raging bull market, and that served to stop the, the the bull market in its tracks for a while and have it go sideways until they finally relented and and started doing what they called not QE. We were instructed not to call it QE, but even though they were doing it. Um, but ending quantitative tightening round number two uh, allowed the stock market to go up again until the COVID crash hit. Now we're in QT3, and it's going about as badly as you'd expect it would go when the Fed starts yanking liquidity away and shrinking the money supply. Uh, that's not a good thing for the stock market. Tom, I, I want to stay on that topic because the Treasury originally said they needed to raise about half a trillion dollars in Q4. They just bumped that up to over $700 billion. And if we talk about the Treasury market, where, you know, it's hard to believe a little over a year ago, we were at a half a percent on uh, 10 year Treasuries. Now we're over 4%. T bills have gone from one tenth of a percent to over, what, 4.5, 4.7. So we've got 30% of the government debt rolling over. You're talking about uh, we're tracking at between 800 billion and a trillion in interest. What's this going to do next year? Well, it's not going to do good things. And uh, our grandchildren should rightfully curse us for dumping this problem on them. And uh, but we we know that uh, from the past two rounds of QT that it, it it hurts the stock market for as long as it goes on. Uh, we know that it's happening that way again this time, and it's still going on. And the Fed is not showing any sign of letting up on their on their pace of bond sales. In fact, they seem they seem to be accelerating it, which sucks more liquidity out of the banking system and out of the stock market. The stock market does great when there's 
excess money sloshing around when there's money that doesn't have anything else to do. And so the money goes looking for a job and, the, and it gets used to push up stock prices. When, when you take away that condition of excess money, it's like uh, having your plants growing in your garden on miracle Grow, And then you decide, okay, guys, uh, no more miracle Grow. You have to get by on compost now. Well, the plants don't are just not going to do as well. And that excess money that was doing the job of boosting stock prices uh, doesn't exist anymore. So the stock prices have to come down to a more organic level. And they're in the process of doing that. And the other risk and danger here is a disruption of the treasury market. Uh, Tom, I wonder if you might switch gears a bit and let's talk about interest rates, because I have never seen the volatility in treasuries that we see today. And there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about loss of liquidity in the treasury market as the big players, fund managers and investment banks are moving away because it's just uh, they don't want to be caught short or hanging on to bonds where they lose money. If you think of all the young people that are now in the financial services industry who weren't even alive during the 1970s interest rate hiking cycle, they haven't lived through this. They don't know what it's like, and it would not be surprising to have them overreact or react strangely because they just had never seen this before. At the same time, we are in the ascending phase of the 60-year cycle in interest rates. It features a 30-year down cycle and a 30-year up cycle. Well, the 30-year up cycle was due to begin in 2010, and it didn't start because interest rates kept falling. Now we're having to play catch up because we're already 12 years into the hike, into the rate rising cycle that's due to last until 2040. And the, the market spent too long at the party. And now it realizes, oh, man, I got to drive home and I got to catch up for, and make up for lost time. And so we are in the middle of that catch up for lost time phase right now. Eventually, it'll stabilize and rise at a more steady and slower rate. But we're in a rising interest rate environment all the way till 2040. It won't go in a straight line. There'll be some bumps and wiggles along the way, but everybody who refinanced their house at 2% a couple of years ago should pat themselves on the back and should not succumb to the temptation to refinance it or pay it off early. Uh, But everybody else, that's just too bad. You know, how high or how far do we go before we end up in a debt crisis? Because I'm just looking at the deficit, its rate of growth, the, the fiscal spending, and I see so many headwinds that the Fed is going up against. One of them is fiscal policy. So, I mean, the government is spending so much money, shoveling it into the economy, and it's going to force the Treasury to just raise massive amounts of debt. I imagine at some point the, the markets are going to rebel against this. And could the Fed be forced by politicians to start monetizing this debt? Well, let me just throw some real round numbers at you. We got about $31 trillion in total federal debt. Not all of that is owned by the public. Some of that's owned by Social Security and some by the Fed, but interest accrues on all of that. So if you figured, just to make the math easy, if you figured 10% interest on $30 trillion, that's $3 trillion of interest payments. So if the net effective rate that Treasury was having to pay on all its bonds and T-bills and notes and everything, if that was at 10%, then you'd be paying $3 trillion in interest. Well, our total federal budget is only about $3.9 trillion. So we don't have to go very far before we get into a real crunch where we're paying out so much of, our, of what we take in in taxes. 
in the form of interest payments that we just can't afford to have any other government services. We can't have afford to pay out Social Security. We can't afford to, afford to pay soldiers and IRS agents and interior agents. We, we can't afford to pay roads. We can't do anything except pay interest. And, and it, we don't have to go very far to get to that point. Yeah, I just see it at the rate it's going to be growing. And what's going to accelerate that budget deficit, of course, is what the Treasury is having to pay in interest costs, which are, you know, when you, it's hard to believe, Tom, at the beginning of the year, we were at almost 0% interest. And here we are, uh, Fed funds rated four and probably going up to four and a half or five, or who knows when they're going to stop. I want to move on to two particular markets. You have a graph that you sent me. And that's gold's message for the crude oil. Tell me what that chart is telling you. Yeah, that's the subject of our weekly chart and focus series. People can access that on our website at mcoscillator.com. One of the fun things that gold does is it serves as a messenger for lots of things. Uh, It tells us about 20 months ahead of time what interest rates are going to do. It tells us about 19 and a half months ahead of time what oil prices are going to do. And what gold is saying right now is that crude oil prices should be bottoming right now and heading up rather aggressively into January. Um, I think that may get exacerbated by uh, once the election is done, the, the Biden administration turns off the, uh, the the supply of fuel from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, because they've been selling oil to try to uh, out of that or to try to drive prices down ahead of the election, which is pretty shameful. But um, that's another point. Oil prices are headed up into January. Then they should stabilize a little bit next year, but generally trend up. We're not going to see a big decline in crude oil prices for most of 2023. We could see one in 2024, and that would drive gasoline prices down then. But I I can't give anybody a whole lot of hope about you're going to start paying two bucks a gallon again for gasoline because oil prices are just bound to stay high based on the message of what gold says. And the way we do that is on a chart, you just take the plot of gold and the plot of crude oil and you shift forward the plot of gold by 19.8 months. And you find out that like a key in a lock, all the the bumps and wiggles start to line up again. And you realize that these movements in gold prices 19.8 months ago are flowing through the economy and and showing up again in crude oil prices. It's, It's like a wave passing from one place in the financial markets to the other. Given the the nature that we see right now, some of these headwinds, I just see the Fed's going to have a lot of difficulty taming inflation. One is energy because that permeates all aspects of our economy. They're already talking about diesel shortages on the East Coast. Imagine what happens if you don't have diesel fuel, what happens to trucking and goods in stores? So there's one. Then you have growing fiscal policy uh, where we're spending a lot of money. And then, of course, you have the war in Ukraine, which is disrupting the oil markets, the grain markets. There's a lot of headwinds out there that they're facing. And I don't know how they lick this without crashing everything. It's true. Um, and not all of the inflation is the fault of the Fed or the or the or Congress. There is a 5.3 year cycle in the inflation rate. And so we were due to have an upturn in the inflation rate of some kind. It just got magnified and amplified by what Congress did and what the Fed did with in, in 2020 in response to the COVID crash. They overstimulated everything, and that magnified what should have been a much smaller increase in the, in the inflation rate. The Fed is now faced with the problem of trying to tame that, but they don't have very good tools. Uh, it's, it's not really something that they can fix. 
that that cycle is going to peak and, and start coming down, but it's not going to come down instantly. And raising interest rates only affects inflation in one sense. It, it, temp, it, it dampens demand. So most people, the housing industry right now at 7% mortgages is just dying. Nobody's going to be building new houses because the, the, the cost of a mortgage just shot up a whole bunch. So that's going to stifle uh, housing growth and people are going to still live in their parents' basement because they can't afford to buy a new house. So that'll drive down the cost of two by fours and, and kitchen sinks and bathroom fixtures. Uh, and eventually that'll start flowing through into more layoffs and people spending less. The only thing that interest rate raises do is that they dampen demand. They don't do anything about supply. And inflation is a fundamentally a problem of too much money chasing too few goods and services. Well, you can, you can do something about the too much money part with interest rates, but raising interest rates doesn't solve the supply problem. It doesn't drill for more oil. It doesn't make more widgets. It doesn't grow more food. And that's what you need to have. You need to have an overabundance of supply uh, to have all the suppliers start competing with each other and driving down prices. Interest rate rises won't do that. If we take a look at the markets, this is one of those years, I think, Tom, where a lot of things did not work. You lost money in bonds probably the worst bond market I've seen in probably three or four decades. You lost money in stocks. Commodities went down. So that old 60-40 rule on investing did not work here. But then on top of that, when you look at the way these investment markets are working, you know, for Tom, almost a decade, passive investing was in. All he did, put your money in an index fund. You didn't need to worry. You, you made money each year. I just don't see passive investing working in this decade. Well, <laughs> depends on how you define working. It doesn't work in terms of making money. Uh, it works in terms of uh, companies that tell you on the idea getting fees from it. So it, work, it still works in that sense. But in terms of being a good investing idea, it, it, it only works in a strong bull market. And so it worked great for a while. Uh, but as we, But nobody who lived through the 70s believed in passive investing and buy and hold. People who had survived going through the 70s knew that there was a time to invest and a time to not invest. Uh, people who grew up in the 80s and 90s thought, you just keep buying because it always comes back. And so we are going to re-educate a new generation of investors that, yes, the market can go sideways for a long time. And no, you're not, you're not guaranteed your 8% return. And 60-40% it works great most of the time, uh, but it doesn't work all the time. And once people get educated to that through having lived through this experience, they will remain educated that way and they will not believe it for a long time, even though we will transition into a, another period again someday where buy and hold is going to work great. They will they were going to be one spurn twice shy and they won't uh, want to come back. So it's not going to be a great time for the financial services industry for the next few years. So given where we are right now, and given the strong headwinds that we have in the markets, number one with the Fed, especially the message that was given on Wednesday that the terminal rate is probably going much higher than the markets anticipated. Tom, what would you be doing here given the fact that we're, as you mentioned, we're in that third year of a presidential cycle, which is normally good for the markets? Well, I don't ever give individual advice to anybody. Uh, I don't give re recommendations. I just tell people what I'm doing and assume that they're grown-ups grown -ups and can make their own decision. For our managed accounts program, we're short the S&P 500 right now, uh, expecting to stay that way till late November. There should be a bounce from a late November low, and there should be a retest low 
uh, the last week of December into early January. We're in a, a, dif- a different sort of year this year. And so I think tax issues are going to be a theme for which sectors do well at the end of the year. Um, anybody who had some capital gains, which is not very many people, are going to want to sell their losers at the end of the year to, to lock in those capital losses and offset those gains. You can even hold over your capital losses into next year and, and offset capital gains next year with that. So anything that's been a loser during 2020, I would expect to continue to being a loser during the last two weeks of December as people get that tax loss selling done. Uh, beginning in January, we have the opportunity for a slightly upward tilt to the, to the market. It'll still be a choppy market, but a slightly upward market beginning in early January. But we're at the beginning of November, so we've got two months to go before we get to that point where it's going to be a better time to be a buyer. All right. Well, listen, Tom, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you do, tell them how they can easily do so. Go to our website, mcoscillator.com. That's a contraction of the McClellan Oscillator, the indicator that my parents developed back in 1969. I still have the privilege of working with my father, Sherman McClellan, who's 88 years old and still going strong, doing great. Uh, You you can go to our website and find out about subscribing. You can also see that article that Jim mentioned talking about gold's message for crude oil and see how that leading indication works. You can see sample issues of our newsletter and our daily edition and uh, get more information. You can even sign up for our free weekly chart and focus article that'll get emailed to you. No strings attached. We won't spam you. Uh, It's just a way to get more people acquainted with the work that we do. One more question, if I may. What is the breakdown of the big tech stocks telling you? You, We're starting to see, I mean, just take a look at Meta, take a look what's happening to Apple, what's happening to Google, what's happening to Amazon. These five FANG stocks, the darlings of the market over the last couple of years, uh, are are they just playing catch up now to the rest of the market? That's a good short version of it. Jim, you ever been to a pig farm? (laughs) <laughs> Not really. But. Well, you can imagine a pig farm. You got a, a mother sow gives birth to a to a litter of baby pigs, and if the mother sow uh, is a great milk producer, then all of her babies can get plenty of milk and they can grow great. And so you have healthy piglets, regardless of whether they're the runts or the big piggies. If the mother sow is not a great milk producer, then the big piglets will muscle their brethren aside and and they'll get to suckle and they'll get what they need, but the runts will start dying. Well, we've been seeing the runts dying all year. And now finally, the big piggies are starting to suffer because the liquidity underpinnings of this market have been getting undermined for a long time. And eventually it comes around to get the big ones. All right. We'll end on that. And Tom, happy holidays to you. Have a safe rest of the year and hope to talk to you in the new year. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Joining me on the program from CoreLogic is Selma Hepp. She's an economist there. 
Selma, let's talk about real estate in general. Around the country, we're seeing a softening in prices. You've taken a look at new home sales, existing home sales. They're going down. So does this trend continue? Do you think we level off? Where do we go from here, given that they're still in a hype mode? Right. Well, Jim, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's such a pleasure to be here and speaking with you today. Like you said, you know, we've seen financial conditions and housing markets changing with breathtaking speed since mortgage rates started surging earlier this year. So there's a lot that, you know, there's to untangle in terms of housing markets. Home sales have gone down considerably. They are down about 20-ish percent, depends on the market. In California, for example, they're down 30 plus percent. And they've gone down even more in recent months with the surge in mortgage rates beyond 6% that we've seen and now even approaching 8% by some measures. So, you know, it's really weighing on home buying sentiment as well as home selling sentiment, which is leading to fewer and fewer sellers putting their home on the market. So you have both buyers and sellers sitting on the sidelines and creating this standstill in the housing market. In terms of home prices, home price growth has also considerably slowed. If you think about earlier this year in spring months, we reached peak rate of home price appreciation at about 20% nationally, but in some markets even beyond that. And so now we are at half of that. We're at about 11% home price growth in September data. So half of the rate of home price appreciation and that deceleration will continue. So we do anticipate home price growth continuing to slow in 2023 and kind of getting to flattening in terms of home prices. So by April of next year, we're likely to see no increase in home prices compared to where they were in April of this year. So zero level of a year-over-year change in prices. And then at some point later next year, with anticipation that that mortgage rates will start coming down. (laughs) Now that's debatable. We can talk about that. But if they do in fact start coming down and approach this five and a half to six percent rate where we were in the middle of this year, I think we may see some pickup in activity again and home price appreciation starting to inch up slightly, still not to that long-term historical rate of four to five percent, but somewhere right below that. Selma, one of the things my real estate agents have been telling us here is that if you take a look at the market itself, you take your average home and then you take your McMansions, the McMansion areas have been hit hard, like areas like Rancho Santa Fe here in La Jolla, where the price of real estate is a lot more expensive. Are you finding the same thing in Los Angeles, like Pacific Heights, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, places like that? Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. So luxury markets have generally seen more volatility, you know, depending on what's happening with the economy. And so during the pandemic, we saw a surge in luxury home sales and they, you know, more than doubled in some areas. And so now we're coming off of that peak and, you know, there has been a lot of volatility and home sales, luxury home sales have come down. But, you know, by some measures, they're still where they were back in late 2018 or early 2019. So it's still not that bad. It's just when we're comparing it to the pandemic years, particularly 2021, which was the strongest year on record for luxury sales that we were able to identify. So, you know, now comparing to that year makes things look much worse. But, you know, the other thing with luxury home sales, they are very sensitive to 
equity markets to stock market volatility. They are also more volatile when it comes to economic uncertainty. So I think these are all reactions to what we're seeing generally in the economy and stock markets as well. You know, the unfortunate thing for new home buyers, I mean, it was getting very expensive for new home buyers with the price appreciation we've seen over the last three years. Now we've got prices coming down, but now we've got mortgage rates up at 7 and 8%, so they're still expensive. No, absolutely. So affordability is at a worst that it's ever been. It's even worse that it was at the peak in 2006 prior to Great Recession. So one, we look at the estimate what inflation-adjusted typical mortgage payment is every month, you know, based on what mortgage rates are and what home prices are. And with mortgage rates being higher, and despite the slight decline in home prices, typical mortgage payment is now 50% higher than it was just a year ago for a same home. So that obviously significantly reduces budget for first-time home buyers. And, you know, I think that's the group that's been hurt the most because of rising mortgage rates. You know, Selma, we've heard about all these stories about Californians leaving California, going to Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Florida. Same thing with New Yorkers, New Jersey people going down to Florida. One of the things that really surprised me, I had a client in California, they were thinking of selling their home here, and they were looking at going to Arizona in Scottsdale. And to their shock, the homes, this was at the beginning of the year before all these aggressive rate hikes, but the prices in Phoenix and Scottsdale were more expensive than what they were seeing here in their home, which really surprised me. But I guess all of the individuals leaving California and elsewhere moving to the state of Arizona has really driven prices up. It's come down since then, but that was the situation at the beginning of the year. You're absolutely right. I mean, to a large extent, the more expensive states on the West Coast and Northeast have exported, in a sense, their high home prices because people that were moving to more affordable areas had larger budgets and generally, you know, may have sold their home, for example, in California and had a budget of a million dollars moving to a market where median home price is, say, $300,000, $400,000. So they had much larger budget to work with. And because of the inventory constraint that we've had since the onset of the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, you know, they were bidding on whatever was there available for sale and bidding it at much higher pace, leading to much larger rate of home price appreciation. And, you know, the example of Arizona Cumulatively, since the start of the pandemic, Arizona has seen largest increases in home prices. So home prices there are up 60% since the onset of the pandemic. You know, thinking nationally only compared to Arizona, they were up 40%. So, right. So much more appreciation in Arizona than elsewhere. And similar situation in other states that are adjacent to California, like Nevada, Idaho, Utah, Colorado. A lot of those states saw much larger rates of appreciation as a result of migration from the West Coast and are now suffering in a sense that are seeing much larger declines since the spring peak in home prices. Until now, they're seeing much larger declines than, for example, we're now seeing in some parts of California. So, you know, because we saw this outmigration, people went there, but maybe the rate of outmigration has slowed and local residents can no longer at this point be able to afford homes in their own markets, you know, so that's why we're seeing this pullback on on home prices in those markets. You know, one of the interesting things that I'd like to get your take on this, 
the realtors were telling me, and this was earlier in the year, and then of course last year, that a lot of the buyers that were coming into San Diego buying were a lot of people out of San Francisco because, you know, with the pandemic, they worked remotely. So, you know, real estate in Silicon Valley, it was expensive when you compare it to looking to San Diego. So a lot of the tech people were coming down here and buying. We had a story here that hit the papers. Bill Gates bought another place on the beach here in Del Mar and paid $48 million and is renovating it. So, I mean, you have a lot of this kind of activity. Do you follow that story? I mean, do you buy into that? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, that was the interesting thing during the pandemic is that San Diego was one of the strongest markets in California. I mean, the rate of appreciation almost matched that of what we saw in Arizona or Nevada because folks from more expensive part of the state were coming down to, you know, relatively more affordable parts of the state, such San Diego is, but that offers similar types of amenities. I mean, think about access to the beach, access to a lot of other outdoor amenities that are available in San Diego. I mean, for a lot of people, San Diego is one of those ideal markets to retire in because it's just so beautiful. The weather is perfect. Homes were relatively more affordable to elsewhere in the state, and they get to do all these wonderful, fun things. So yes, that's what happened in San Diego. And San Diego is now, as a result, also one of those markets that is seeing relatively a faster pullback in home prices, but that's in higher price tier. You know, you're talking about folks buying luxury homes coming in. That's where we saw most appreciation in San Diego, but that appreciation rate is also pulling back as a result of, you know, just where prices have gotten at this point in the cycle. Selma, do you see any places that are still of value when it comes to real estate? I know some of the financial publications, including the Wall Street Journal, has been talking about alternative places to retire other than, let's say, Arizona, Nevada, or Texas, where the prices of real estate have been going up as a result of exodus in high price states. Any areas you see as value? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to find value at this point because we've seen so much home price appreciation. But, you know, there are markets that remain relatively stable in terms of home price growth. So, for example, one is Chicago, you know, and Chicago is a market that is, you know, also provides a wide range of amenities. You can do a lot of cultural activities. There is lake, but then there is also winter, right? So, you know, I mean, it depends a lot to what people are willing to compromise. But, you know, one market that's now potentially going to see more immigration is uh, New Mexico, you know, market adjacent to Arizona, because it has remained relatively more affordable to Arizona. And it does afford that, you know, the weather, it's hot, you know, it's a nice place to retire in that sense because you don't have to worry about a snow and the winter, and it is a little bit more affordable. So there's, you know, spots across the country. I mean, Washington, D.C. is also a larger Washington, D.C. metro. Also didn't see the same level of home price appreciation because the city itself depends so much on federal government workers, and a lot of them didn't come in to the offices until this summer. So because of that, the rate of home price appreciation lagged some other markets, but that would be one market as well. And then the other markets that people are moving to more frequently now are Tennessee, Ohio, for example, Indiana, you know, markets that have a lot of, again, green spaces, people can do a lot of things outside, but are not necessarily, you know, very strong winters. I mean, I guess it depends from winter to winter. And, you know, we've seen some bad winters recently, but, you know, it may not be Chicago winter or Northeast type of winter. And finally, I guess, what are you seeing from an investment point of view, apartments? I mean, I can't believe what 
people have to pay for rent here in Southern California and even places even like Arizona where rents have been going up as well. Yeah, I mean, so we've had a lot of spillover into the rental markets because of what was happening in the homeownership market, right? For many potential homeowners, buying a home just became so unaffordable that they had to go and rent. And so we saw a rent growth rate increase at four times the pace to where it was prior to the pandemic. So, you know, before the pandemic, it was increasing about three to 4%. It went up to 12% in early months of this year and has come down since too. So it's also decelerating similarly to home price appreciation because people at this point simply cannot afford those rents, those levels of rents anymore. And so I think what we're seeing at this point is that if people will start to double up, households will double up, meaning that while you were maybe a single person in a single apartment before, now you're going to get a roommate and get maybe two bedroom apartment instead, because, you know, on a monthly basis, that works out a little bit better for people, you know, and then I think similarly to home prices, I think the rate of rent growth will slow. And in some markets may have to decline because people will no longer be able to afford to stay in the markets. So final question, if I may, Selma, if you were a first time buyer, or let's say even you're thinking of moving or trading up, given where we are right now, like I said, we're doing this interview on a Tuesday, where it's widely expected that the Fed will raise interest rates three quarters of a point on Wednesday, what would you be doing? Would you wait at this point or would you be buying? Say if I was a first-time buyer or if I was a move-up buyer? First-time buyer. First-time buyer. Okay. So the reason why I'm asking, because there's a difference and I'll explain what it is. But yes, if I was a first-time buyer, the advantage potentially that a first-time buyer has right now is that competition is not as intense as it was earlier this year. You know, I mean, we've all heard stories where for any open house, there was 30, 40 offers and sale price went 20, 30% over the asking price. And it was an all cash offer. You know, I mean, it's just those stories were everywhere across the country. And so now we are no longer seeing that the level of competition is no longer there. Well, about 40% of homes listings right now are being discounted from their original list price. So that provides a better opportunity for first-time homebuyers to come in. Now, yes, mortgage rates are high and it may be the first year may be difficult. They may, you know, not be able to afford spending on other activities. But I think down the road, you know, it's widely expected that Federal Reserve will pull back in federal funds rate. Mortgage rates will come down. Forecast at this point is for mortgage rates to return to about 5.5% by the end of next year into 2024. You know, at that point, they can refi and, you know, then they will be in a better position. The other thing is, you know, there's also adjustable rate mortgages uh, that they can come into right now. I mean, it's a more risky product because you don't know what's going to happen down the road, but then you can also uh, refi at some point. So, you know, I think because the benefit right now, again, is that the market is less competitive. So it's easier to come in as a first-time buyer. And let me just clarify on the other point of the move-up buyer, the difficulty that they're facing is that they have probably locked in super favorable mortgage rate of 2 to 3% and home price that was you know 20% below where it is today. And so they likely don't have any incentive to move. And that's why the rate of new listings coming on the market has declined significantly in the last couple of months because that incentive has been taken out by much higher mortgage rates at this point. Very good. 
point that you're raising there. I didn't think about that because a lot of us, you know, locked in on those two and a half, 2.8 percent mortgages, and those are kind of hard to give up. Why would I want to trade that for a seven or eight percent mortgage? Selma, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow all the great work you guys do at CoreLogic, tell them how they could do so. Yes. So we are on CoreLogic.com and there is a section titled Intelligence. And under the Intelligence, that's our blog, they they can follow all the writings that we do. And we pretty much post daily in terms of trends in the housing market. I also post a lot of the analysis on my own LinkedIn page, which is just Selma Hebb or Twitter, Selma Hebb or CoreLogic as well has a Twitter page and LinkedIn page. So they can follow us on social media as well as on our website. All right. Well, listen, Selma, great speaking with you. Hope to do so again. Have yourself a great rest of the year. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. There's a perfect storm headed our way, especially as some economic models are now warning 100% odds of recession over the coming year. Today, we're going to look at this approaching storm on four fronts, energy, inflation, debt, and war. But first, let's talk about the widely anticipated event that took place this week, and that was the Fed's six interest rate hike on Wednesday, making this current tightening cycle one of the fastest we've seen on record, just as the economic data is strongly rolling over. Well, you know, it was rather interesting, Chris, because when they raised three quarters of a point, which was widely expected, they changed and added a sentence that basically they were going to start looking and monitoring the lag effects of the rate hikes. And so the market responded to that. I think we're up about 300 points. But then in the press conference that followed, the Fed changed the topic and said, well, you know what? The terminal rate, in other words, the rate at which they're going to stop raising is likely to be much higher than what we thought in September. And so that was bad news for the market. They didn't like that. And we had a reversal at the end of the day. I think we were down three or 400 points. And the other thing that they said is questions were asked, you know, you keep doing this, you're going to start breaking things. We've seen the real estate market break. We'll talk about other things that are starting to break down. They said, well, we're not worried. We have the tools to deal with that. Meaning, you know, if if we do go into recession, Friday's unemployment report, fewer jobs than expected, the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7, which is what the Fed wants. The Fed would like to see unemployment grow to over 5% and take off some of the heat in the labor markets, but it's just a wrong way of thinking at things. But what we're seeing, Chris, is the Fed is facing a perfect storm of policy mistakes. You've got fiscal policy, which is highly inflationary. You've got energy policy, which is highly inflationary. You got a foreign proxy war with Russia in the Ukraine, which is inflationary. And we're starting to see things start to break down. Watch what we're seeing. We're seeing tech companies, all the major tech companies are either, whether it's Apple, Google, or somebody else, are saying they're holding back, they're freezing hiring, some are starting to lay off. Uh, You've got guys like Jeff Bezos saying that, you know, it's time to button down the hatches. You've got Amazon following below a trillion dollar market cap for the first time in several years. And so we've seen things starting to break. It's going to get a lot worse. And, you know, he's just saying, you know what, we're still going ahead with this. So 
maybe the best thing that could happen at this point is they slow the rate of increase, which will allow them to at least pause if things start breaking down, as we're seeing in the treasury market, in the credit markets, which could be next. Jim, one of the big policy headwinds that we're facing here, and this is something that we started discussing early in 2020, where you predicted that we'd be moving from an energy glut, as we saw under the lockdowns, to an energy crisis. And we began positioning quite heavily in the energy sector. Obviously, that has been a major outperformer now with some of the events that we've seen with the shortages and energy problems currently. But of course, the Fed is quite powerless to stop this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this began, Chris, with uh, Biden's first day in office. One of the first things he did his first day in office is he nixed the Keystone Pipeline. And as Robert Rapier recently wrote in oilprice.com, had he not done that, we would be getting well over a million barrels a day coming in from Canada and from the Bakken, which would help alleviate what the president has tried to substitute with draining the strategic petroleum reserves. So that was one of the beginnings. And then, of course, basically putting a a ban on any new drilling on federal lands. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently did an article we, we referred to out of any president since World War II. This has been the first president that has issued the least amount of leases and permits for drilling. So we had that to begin with. Then go back to the beginning of the year in February when the war broke out in the Ukraine. So immediately the the Western countries started to put sanctions against Russia, removing a lot of Russian oil off the market. Now we got this cockamamie idea that we're going to put price caps on what Russia can sell its oil. Well, they're going to circumvent that as we're starting to see right now, where you've got Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, several of the Gulf states that are moving out of the dollar and moving away from the petrodollar and going to rubles or going to Chinese yuan uh, in terms of uh, commodity trading. And that's something to really look at because oil is denominated in dollars and it's created a problem for a lot of governments from Japan to China and elsewhere as they have to scramble to raise dollars, which is one reason they've been selling off a lot of their treasuries. So we've got that. Then we go back to COVID when oil demand dropped at like nine or 10 million barrels a day. And we actually had a negative print in the price of oil. A lot of these refineries shut down and they have not come back online. In fact, refinery capacity is running full out right now just to, you know, basically produce as much product as we can. So we lost refinery capacity. The other thing is this conflict that you have in terms of demand. The IEA said we're hitting peak demand. We we don't need as much investments. Now they're reversing. I just downloaded uh, earlier in this week uh, a 350-page report, which I think is more reliable. It's the World Oil Outlook that is published by OPEC. And if you take a look at what OPEC is saying, they're saying that next year in 2023, oil demand is going to grow by 2.7 million barrels a day from 2022 this year. That's going to be an increase of almost 1.4 million barrels above what we're consuming this year. What was more alarming in their report is they said by basically 2027, 
oil demand will go up to 108 million barrels a day. And at the same time, OPEC oil output is going to be drifting down by 2027. So one of the big issues that have come up is, you know, recently they said they're going to cut production by 2 million barrels. As of we pointed out on the show, they're falling short of producing what they say they're going to do by almost 3.6 million barrels. So the 2 million barrel cut per day really wasn't really a cut because they're not even producing that. And that's because a lot of OPEC's oil fields, especially the biggest one in Saudi Arabia, Garwar, which was more than half of Saudi production, is gone from about five and a half million barrels of production today. It's down to about 3.3 and it is falling. So you've got even the IA now is reversing course and saying that, you know, maybe we get through the winter this year in Europe, but it is looking pretty grim next year for natural gas in Europe once all these uh, sanctions go into place at the beginning of the year against Russia. And so look what we're talking about right now. You've got Chevron warning the East Coast that they could be facing diesel shortages. Uh, You've got, I, I think we're down to like only two or three weeks supply of diesel fuel on the West Coast. And think what that means. If you can't get diesel fuel for trucks or shipping, that means there's going to be less goods in the store. So that's a big issue. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the first things the Biden administration did was cancel the Keystone Pipeline. And that was a major mistake because environmentally, it is safer and cheaper to transport oil through a pipeline than it is to put it on a truck and a train. So that would have been bringing a lot more oil into this country right now where it would not have been necessary to start tapping the strategic petroleum reserves, which are down now to levels that we haven't seen since 1984. So, Jim, you're identifying a number of different policy-driven mistakes here, lending to higher inflation, higher energy prices, utility bills are spiking, not just in Europe, but also here in the U.S. It's one of the fastest rising components of inflation here currently. Uh, Obviously, you know, we're making a lot of moves that are making energy production, electricity production much more expensive with intermittent power. This is something that many people are now realizing that are waking up to. Uh, But tell us a a bit about what you're seeing in terms of the green agenda. Do you think we're seeing a move away from some of these aggressive ESG policies or uh, do you see these continuing to move forward? You know, Chris, I don't see us moving away. I mean, we're moving from a more reliable, cheaper form of energy to a less efficient, more costly form of energy. And as Peter Zine has written in his book, and we've talked numerous times here with experts, green doesn't work everywhere, and EV doesn't work well in cold weather. And there are large swaths of the majority of the Earth's landmass that is not conducive to wind and solar. But yet we're doing that. And the thing that we, I think what the banana greens don't realize here. Uh, Jim, what, what is banana greens? Well, this is, it's sort of like the environmental movement that has shifted over more, Chris, away from science to more of a religion. And it's just this kind of banana stance for build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. I mean, it's great. You can give lip service to wind and solar, but good luck trying to put a a wind turbine off Hyannisport, the Kennedys dropped that. Good luck trying to put it off the coast of Santa Barbara 
or Malibu, it's never going to happen. Or, you know, you, you try to build a solar farm and they're talking about, well, this will cover the ground squirrels. I mean, it's just like we want to go back to this deindustrializing anti-human philosophy of going back to basically a more primitive form of life. And we don't realize the prosperity that we have today is a result of fossil fuels, which run machinery. Let's talk about farming. Take a look at the fertilizers and take a look at what we're able to produce in farm output. You had guys like Paul Ehrlich uh, who were talking about famine, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and we're producing more food than ever. It's tractors, it's combines. It's not some farmer with a horse and a plow. It is that machinery. Think about the machines that allow us to build buildings, skyscrapers, large ships. I mean, think of everything that we use today that we manufacture. It's done with machines. And those machines run on fossil fuels. You're not going to see farmers with, you know, battery powered tractors or combines or harvesters. It's just not going to work because our main transportation system is still going to be fossil fuels well into, they estimate, well into 2040, 2050. In addition to that, just like the OPEC report, we've got less investment. Investment in oil and gas exploration is down 60%. And oil is a depleting asset. If you're producing it and pushing it out the front door, you better replace it through the back door. And that is not happening. Plus our the major oil fields in the world, the giants, they are declining. And then on top of that, you throw regulations and taxation. And it's why, Chris, we could see oil prices over $200 a barrel in a crisis. And what are we going to do mid-decade when lack of investment and we're going to have growing demand? And contrary to what the IA has said in the past, Demand is actually going up, which is uh, I haven't gotten completely through the 350 page OPEC report, but basically they're talking about growing demand. It's not declining. It's going up. And they're basically questioning their own ability to produce more oil because we've always looked at OPEC in Saudi Arabia. Well, if we get into trouble, they have enough spare capacity. They can pump oil. They don't have that capacity. And that's why we see a combination of just a perfect storm alone in energy from war to policy to depletion. Given what you just said, energy is the first major headwind that the Fed is facing. Again, they can't print barrels of oil. They can't print new mines. This is all up to uh, regulatory efforts and what we see in terms of policies coming from the administration. What's another headwind that you see the Fed facing in the years ahead? You know, part of it is fiscal policy is highly inflationary. One of the things the, that ignited the inflation we're going through now was the stimulus package that came in in the first couple of months when Biden took office. I think it was, what was it, $1.8, $1.9 It was pushing trillions of dollars into the economy as the economy was recovering from COVID and was moving quite strongly. And then all of a sudden you throw several trillion dollars there, but it didn't stop there. It was 1.2 trillion for infrastructure. It was another 900 billion 
for uh, Build Back Better. It was another $400 billion for the CHIP stimulus bill. So fiscal policy is highly inflationary. In fact, U.S. debt on the day we're speaking just crossed, I'm looking at my Bloomberg here, $31 trillion, $222 billion. One of the things that's kind of spooking the Treasury market is the Treasury just came out and originally in September, they said we need to raise about $500 billion by the end of the year. They just upped that, Chris, to over $700 billion alone in the fourth quarter. And we take a look at what we're tracking right now. Interest on the debt is tracking at $800 billion and could go as high as $1 trillion in debt alone. And one of the things that you're going to start hearing a lot, and especially if the Republicans retake Congress, is we've all talked about the on the program MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which is responsible for this giant fiscal spending spree that we've seen. By the way, both parties adhere to this. We were running trillion-dollar deficits under Trump, so let's not forget that. So this isn't just a Democrat issue. It's both parties are at fault here. But there's another theory that's going to make its rounds, and you're going to hear more about it next year, depending on what happens uh, in the elections. And that's called FTPL, which is the physical theory of price level. So it argues that monetary and fiscal policy don't just interact. They are in uh, ultimately inextricable. So if fiscal policy is irresponsible, not even a responsible central bank can afford uh, to control inflation. And it goes on. There were a number of uh, Nobel Prize authors, uh, Thomas Sargent and Neil Wallace, and they challenged this orthodox. And it said, basically, a government that runs unsustainable deficits will one day fail to sell enough bonds, at which point the central bank will have to finance the shortfall by printing money, basically monetizing it. And that way, they will basically have to raise interest rates or they will have to monetize. And these higher interest rates are going to widen deficits further, ultimately making inflation even harder to control. So persistent high inflation is always and everywhere a physical phenomenon, which the central bank is a monetary accomplice. And so you're going to see this issue come to the forefront because fiscal policy overrides monetary policy. And as we have talked about another issue here that we're starting to see is deglobalization. I don't want to get too much into that. We've covered that extensively, especially with the interviews, Peter Zion. As we move away from manufacturing in China because of supply chain issues, and this is the supply chain issues are likely to be with us for a considerable amount of time because you just don't transition out of China to building new factories everyplace else, and it's going to happen overnight. In fact, I think this is a subject of uh, Jim Rickard's new book, and you just recently did an interview with him. What did he have to say about this? Yeah, so he's his new book is titled Sold Out. It's going to be coming out in December, and that's when we're going to be releasing the interview. Uh, but he's basically talking about long-term problems with the global supply chain due to this decoupling of U.S. and China, that that is a long-term trend that's going to lead to higher costs. It's going to lead to uh, continuing problems with you know global economic growth. 
And as well, you know, I mean, we talked about the fact that China has a major chokehold on all sorts of critical materials, and we're going to be moving away from that, just as you said, from comparative advantage that we've seen over the last many decades that we built the global supply chain off of, you know, choosing to chase efficiency and and profits, essentially moving away from that to now strategic advantage in, in terms of making sure that the supplies that we need are coming from geopolitically friendly areas. So this process is going to play out for many years, if not decades, and he calls it supply chain 2.0. And then finally, Chris, once again, I go back to the banana greens and the ESG agenda. I mean, they're going to be shutting down natural gas and uh, heating on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey. We're doing it here in California. You know, we just passed a bill that's going to force our utilities to shut down their nat gas and coal plants by 2030. And then we just issued uh, a new law that basically new homes are not going to be able to run on natural gas. And so we are moving to an intermittent, unreliable, more costly form of energy. And anybody that lives in California, I don't need to tell you, we have the highest gasoline prices, the highest utility prices in the country. So as many, some of our experts we've had on the program are warning that what's happening in Germany and Europe is coming to New York, New Jersey, and California, and many of these states that are adopting these banana green policies. So that is going to drive the price of energy, which permeates into everything that we spend money on. How do you buy something? Well, you buy uh, something from a store. How did it get there? It got there by transportation, either a truck, a train, a ship that brings it to ports. All of the world runs on fossil fuels for over 80% of its transportation. Now, I may be wrong. You know, who knows what will happen with technology 10 and 20 years, but I just don't see flying a 787 Dreamliner on batteries. I just don't think that's going to work. Jim, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine war, because obviously this fits prominently into this theme that we've been developing over the past couple of years about a longer term, higher than average increase in inflation. Obviously, we've been on the persistent side of this argument uh, since early 2020. That was something you predicted we would see then pushing against the Fed all the way along. And we're continuing to stick with this theme of investors need to be ready for higher than average inflation for the long term. We may see a whiff of deflation, but our belief is that inflation is going to stay higher than average for the long term. And commodity prices are also very likely to remain elevated as well. You need to be investing accordingly for this. And obviously now we see the Russia-Ukraine war becoming a protracted affair, a lot of the geopolitical alignment, all these things coming together in this perfect storm. So tell us about how you see things proceeding in the war in Ukraine and where this fits into this larger theme that we've been developing. Well, first of all, it's disruptive on the energy front, on the food front, and it's going to impact food supplies. The other thing, the nat gas problems in Europe, which we're dealing with, but Chris, wars are highly inflationary. I think we've, uh, we're have we sending the Ukraine close to $80 billion. So we're involved in another proxy war. And both parties are supporting this. So to the tune of 80 to $100 billion, think of what that 80 to $100 billion could be doing. And what do we have to gain here? You know, basically, this war could have been stopped had the Ukraine and the U.S. back the Ukraine and say, you know, tell Russia, hey, we're not going to join NATO, which was a big threat to 
the Russians. So, you know, that's always been a providence of Russian influence, very important for a warm water port to Russia. And, you know, here we are and we're we're interfering in this. And we got to be careful here. You know, it's Russia is not some little power like Iran. They are they have the largest nuclear uh, weapons of any country on the planet. They have more nuclear weapons than the U.S. does. And so we don't want to aggravate it to a point where they start using battlefield nukes. Yeah, when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, we spoke with Martin Armstrong a couple different times this year so far, right after the Russia-Ukraine war broke out. And, you know, he had said that he believed this was actually going to be a prelude to eventual international conflict or World War III. He thinks that that's something that we may see escalate more as we get closer into next year. But at the time, right after the Russia-Ukraine war, there's still lots of talk by the consensus that how quickly is this going to go away and that this may be a limited engagement or conflict. And yet he was out in front saying, no, 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 this is going to be a really big deal. This is going to be drawn out and it's going to lead to a wider international conflict. Of course, that's what we've seen. His forecast was correct. And so uh, he's he's warning like you that this is going to be very problematic for a wide range of commodities. As we see, it's going to continue to put pressure on the commodity space, on the global economy, as long as it lasts. And that obviously, if things do continue to escalate across other borders, um, if we get to that, then then that's only going to drive commodity prices even higher. And these shortages will end up getting worse. So that's the uh, the risk that we see out there. But Jim, let's talk about one area that we've been discussing a number of times on the show, and that's what we see with debt. Uh, Obviously, after COVID, we saw a big shoot up in sovereign debt around the world as all of these different countries print money like no tomorrow to try to stave off a global depression. Obviously, tax revenues were being majorly withdrawn due to the lockdowns. It was kind of this one-two punch. So we see a problem with growing debts, with deficits. So where does this fit into the perfect storm? Well, I mean, if we take a look at the deficits are going to be growing at close to $2 trillion. We're over a trillion. You know, I can remember when we had major fiscal policy changes in Washington in the early 90s, Chris, when we were running $300, $400 billion deficits. Now we run multiple trillion. I mean, we've added $7 trillion of debt just in the last three years. We've added more debt in the last three years years than the first 246 years of this country's history. That's how bad it is. And the cost of debt is going from the 2% overall average on government debt to 4%. So you're going to see interest costs approach a trillion dollars a year, consuming roughly about 25% of government revenues. And by the time Biden leaves office, it's estimated the deficit and outstanding debt will be between 34 and 35 trillion. And if we start getting federal debt interest payments to 5%, game over, because that will consume nearly 35% of all government revenues. So in the end, and that's what I think we're approaching is the end game, the Fed and central banks are going to be forced to monetize debt. And as I mentioned earlier, when our topic on energy We're moving away from the petrodollar. We've lost the Saudis. The Saudis are now moving into the influence of the Chinese 
and uh, the Russian influence. In fact, I was reading an article that there's going to be joint ventures between the Saudis and the Chinese, and the Chinese, to protect their investments, will be moving troops into Saudi Arabia. So you've got Saudi Arabia, you got Iran, you got the Gulf states, you've got Russia, you've got China, all moving to dethrone the dollar because you know after we severed the link of gold, we went to these uh, currencies and it became the petrodollar because commodities were priced in dollars. We're moving away from that, and that is a very dangerous road for the U.S. because the U.S is able to use its currency as not only a weapon, but we benefit from it. We can inflate as much as we want. And basically that inflation is pushed to the rest of the world, just as the dollar strong dollar problem right now is creating huge, massive problems for Western countries to because they have to buy oil with dollars. In order to get dollars, they're selling off treasuries, which is one of the reasons you've seen a spike in treasury yields. So this is a very, very dangerous road that we're moving on. And I just hope the new theory about deficits and fiscal policy driving inflation takes hold if there's a change in Congress next week. You know, it's really interesting. We spoke with Jeff Christian at CPM Group this week on FS Insider. And, you know, he talked about we basically dove into his thesis that the 2023 to 2025 time period, so starting next year and over the next couple of years, would be when we'll see a major resumption of the bull market and precious metals. He's been saying this now for a number of years, I think even going back before 2020, as far as 2018, 2019, when we've been speaking with him on FS Insider about his longer term outlook. But he thinks, you know, we're going to see some pretty strong returns in both gold and silver starting around next year during that two-year period, like I said. And a lot of it will be because we've seen safe haven flows move strongly into the dollar. The dollar's been bid up so high. And he thinks that's going to now shift where the traditional safe haven asset appeal of gold and silver will come back to four starting next year. And again, a, a lot of it will be because a confluence of these events that we're all talking about in today's show, You know, whether or not that is higher energy prices, deficits and debt, demographics, which we've also touched upon. A lot of these things kind of coming to a head starting next year. And uh, we should also include as part of that as well, uh, a potential recession. If we're not already in one, very high probability that we will enter one over the next 12 months. And uh, Bloomberg economics recession probability indicators now at 100% Mm. over the next 12 months. I would imagine that we could see a a big push in metals. At least that's Jeff Christian's analysis. And he's one of the most accurate long-term forecasters on the precious metal space. Well, I mean, if you take a look at the investment markets today, it's the biggest disconnect between paper and the physical markets. I mean, if you take a look at every key strategic mineral, whether it's copper, zinc, nickel, cobalt, oil, natural gas, we have deficits and inventories below five-year average. And the best example I can give you is the gold and silver markets. We have massive, massive short positions in the metals market, especially silver. And we see a big, huge silver squeeze coming in the first part of next year, or at least by the second quarter of next year, because we've got inventories that are dropping. We're down to roughly around 35 million ounces 
on the COMEX. And Chris, that's down from 150 million ounces a year ago. So that's how dramatically it's come down. And uh, there was just article in the Wall Street Journal, the largest central bank buying of gold is taking place at the fastest pace we've seen in 55 years. Central banks bought close to 400 tons of gold or close to $20 billion in just the third quarter alone. And as I mentioned, these massive uh, short positions that we're seeing in silver, in gold, Chris, I think you're going to see, wait till you see, we start going below 20 million ounces on the COMEX and God help the silver shorts because we see a massive short squeeze coming in the first part of next year. The other thing that you have to pay attention to is the disruption in the treasury market. And uh, Janet Yellen has recently kind of reversed policy on this because the ranks of big buyers from banks to asset managers are in retreat. And a lot of this is blamed on these rapid Fed rate hikes, uh, the worst bond market that we've seen in probably over 40 years. I mean, it began with August when Chairman Powell basically threw his script away and just spoke off script. And he goes, you know what? <laughs> Don't think about pivoting. We're not even c- coming close or thinking of that. And then, of course, uh, the press conference this week where he says, you know what? You better start thinking of a higher terminal rate for interest rates. Well, the problem is the Fed thinks, well, we're up at close to almost 4% now in the Fed funds rate. We'll take it up to 5 or maybe more. We're now looking at over a 5% Fed funds rate on the terminal rate that, well, we could always loosen money again. But as we mentioned, this confluence of events that we have are highly inflationary. And I would probably say when the Fed does pivot, you may see a statement coming out, well, a 2% inflation goal is not realistic. Watch for them to bump that up to maybe 3 4 or 5% is more realistic when they get ready to combat the damage that they're doing because things are starting to break down. We're seeing... We could be over 4% unemployment in the first quarter of next year. You're starting to see it from the big tech companies. The layoffs are coming, and the interest rate and the debt levels are just rising so quickly that they're going to have to do something. So hopefully, you know, we start to pivot here pretty soon, either on fiscal policy or monetary policy, or we're heading into this perfect storm. So again, we've been discussing the perfect storm today, energy, inflation, debt, and war, a number of things that are all coming to a head and uh, aligning with our view that we've been reiterating here since early 2020, that we believe we're looking at higher than average inflation, higher than average energy prices, commodity prices, and that this is likely also setting up for higher gold and silver prices, as Jeff Christian also believes at CPM Group, at least over the next couple years. So, Jim, boil all this down to us in terms of investment strategy and what we are doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, it's been our belief, Chris, and we've talked about this, whether it's energy or commodities in general. We're entering a commodity super cycle that's going to be driven by supply side shortages in banana green policies that are driving the need for key raw materials that drive green, whether it's copper, cobalt, nickel, lithium, you name it. And the other thing I think that uh, you're going to see is right now we see a great opportunity in the gold stocks. They've been hit pretty hard. And I look at the gold stocks as sort of an option that doesn't expire on gold itself or silver itself. 
because a lot of these stocks have been beaten up pretty hard. They're still making money. Uh, you know, obviously gold is pulled back, so profits are less. But you have everybody from Newmont to Barrick buying back stock. You've got a lot of these uh, gold mining or base metal companies paying incredible amounts of dividends. So that's one area that we see commodities. You know, in in the the account that I manage, we're thirty percent in commodities now, and we may increase that to thirty five. I'm looking at ag agricultural next. But I think if you want to stay in the bond market, you want to be in short-term treasuries as we are. We've been buying treasury bills. And then the other thing I still like, Chris, and I, I adhere to this is something I learned from following Warren Buffett on cash flow and dividends. I still love dividend stocks, especially essential areas of the market like drugs and staples. But uh, I think you have to be in commodities. You have to have inflation hedges. You have to have a source of income that is going to go up because how are you going to keep up with inflation? Because this is going to be a highly inflationary decade. And we'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead and especially as we head into the new year. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. Today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services, feel free to click where it says contact us on financialsense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.